It's good to be with you in the house of the Lord this morning. It's the house of the Lord because we're here. We are God's people. Wherever the presence of God's people is, there God is as well. Goodbye, kiddos. All the energy is leaving. No, not all of it because y'all got your extra hour of sleep, right? Yeah, yeah, some of you didn't. I know. It's okay. Go ahead and take your Bibles. Join me in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Uh, about every year, uh, I have, well, so far in the time that I've been here, every year I try to take some time away from uh, whatever we've been preaching through, if, if it's not already in those sermons, to talk about the church. Are we staying on track as a church? And how would we know? How would we know? See, especially being an independent Baptist church as we are, there is not a hierarchy above us that tells us what we must do. We have to make sure that we stay faithful to the Word of God ourselves. And so, we continue today a series that we've started years ago called God's Church, God's Way. That's what I want to keep in front of us on a regular basis, that we are not our own as God's people. We are His we want to function as a church the way God would have us to function. Our mission is to make disciples who worship, grow, and serve. And if we do those things, then we will be fulfilling the mandate of Scripture. The mandate of Scripture comes from Matthew chapter 28. You know this. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he, he met with his disciples, giving him that, that final message And he said to them, all authority in heaven on earth and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am Jesus is what Jesus said. Don't don't place that on me. Jesus said, I am the one with all the authority over everything and I'm sending you to do what? Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I like the motto that, well, in your gracious following, we have adopted together as a church that we make disciples who worship, grow, and serve. I like it because it's scriptural. I like it because it covers all the variety of expectations that scripture puts on us. Now, if we were to take a list of all the commands that we as a New Testament church are to follow, it's, it's a significant list. But if we can break it down into three basic categories, that helps. It helps me immensely. So I want to keep this motto in front of us because it covers the expectations that the Scripture places on the church, and it's, it's simple, it's concise. I know of a church who had adopted three directions as their mottos, uh, reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. And, and you can very easily understand that. Reaching up, we're worshiping. Reaching in, we're helping serve one another. We're growing and reaching out. That's missions and, and other service. And, and that's a great motto. I, in fact, I strongly considered adopting it and just calling up the church and asking for their logo because that's so much easier than than thinking through it ourselves. But as I thought of it, I thought it would be actually a little more simple if we have our stated mission also be our stated actions. 
we worship, we grow, and we serve. Are you familiar with the concept of mission creep? It's not some creepy guy on a mission, that's different. Mission creep is the slow and subtle drift away from an original purpose. Companies have this. This happens to businesses. A company that shifts from trying to make the best product that they can make and begins to focus on making the greatest profit they can make, their mission creep happens. Because instead of making the best product that people are going to want to buy and actually spend good money for, that quality goes down and then they start drifting and becoming something different. My parents, when they first got married, and in my perspective, that was the Stone Ages, but when they first got married, they bought a used washer and dryer, an awful avocado green washer and dryer used, and they kept that for 30 years And the only reason they replaced it wasn't because they had worn out, it's because they had moved and they determined we finally want a new set. Today, if you buy a brand new washer and dryer and you get to use it for 15 years, you're gonna feel good about yourself, right? Because mission creep has fallen into the appliance business. As a church, mission creep is part of the reason why there are so many different kinds of churches out there because some have put a focus or an emphasis on something else and have drifted into a different direction. Our desire is not to condemn other churches for what they're doing or to exalt our church as an exemplary model. Our desire is rather to stand firm on the direct commands of Scripture. Because if we'll do that, We will hold mission creep at bay. I'm going to stop saying that phrase. I don't like saying it. (laughs) I didn't realize how much I wouldn't like saying it. Anyway, so our desire is to stand firm on what the word of God says. Everything we do filters through these biblical rhythms of making disciples who worship, grow, and serve. You may have a great idea that you want that, man, this other church in this other town is doing, and, and, and they've seen lots of people show up at these events, and you bring it to me or Pastor Dan, and it doesn't fit making disciples who worship, grow, and serve, we're probably not going to do it, right? Because we as a church have a focus. We have a commitment. So every follower of Jesus has a discipleship responsibility to grow as a disciple, and to help others grow as disciples. We each must purposefully worship. We must keep our hearts and minds focused on God. We worship God collectively. That's what the purpose of this service is right here, right now. But we also do it throughout the week, day in and day out. We worship. Every follower of Jesus Christ must put effort into growing as a believer, and we do that by, by staying in the Word, Learning the word better. Uh, Learning skills as to how to use the word, how to share it with others. All that is growth. We do that in our ABF classes, our Sunday school classes in various groups. And thirdly, every follower of Jesus must serve others. We must serve one another within the body of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, But we also have requirements to serve outside of this building, to serve in our community, to to send missions out into the world, all that. Uh, That's not going to be our focus today. We're going to focus 
on the, the inward aspect of service. Uh, but in our text that we're going to read this morning and then expound on today and the next couple Sundays, Lord willing, um, we, will, we will hit on all three of these rhythms, worshiping, growing, and serving. So I invite you to join me in Romans chapter 15. Let's read verses one through seven together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would Help us to, first of all, love you with all of our hearts and soul and mind. I ask that you would help us to listen to you as you speak to us through your word this morning. Father, I ask that you would help us to obey, to trust that your way is always right to do our best to understand what it is you're asking of us and then to go do it. Father, forgive us for the ways that we fail you. Help us to be refreshed by your word this morning. Use your spirit in our hearts to convince us of the truth, to lead us, to direct us, to convict. We ask this all in your son's name. So already this morning, I've used the word disciple several times. I'm going to continue to use it. And yet, if you read along in the passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 15, did you see the word disciple even once in there? I didn't. Now, you may have a translation that has it in there. Um, the concept, though, is there. So what is a disciple? Put simply, a disciple is a follower, so a disciple of Jesus Christ is a follower of Jesus Christ. A, a current word might actually be a fan, which you know is short for fanatic, and people don't like to be called fanatics about things. Back in the day, back before the establishment of the church, so we're talking the B.C. era, the concept of being a disciple of another person was quite common and widely understood. So when we come to the term disciple in the New Testament, there was already a foundation of understanding that all the people reading it would have had. For instance, have you heard of Socrates? You may not know what he said, but you've at least heard of him, and he's been gone for a long time. He was about 400 years before Christ. Socrates is the father of Western philosophy, and he had many followers, otherwise known as Disciple. Socrates himself wrote nothing. But everything we know that he, Socrates would teach, we learned from the disciples of Socrates, specifically Plato. Ever heard of Plato? Not Play-Doh, Plato. Sorry, I was saying that poorly. 
Plato was a disciple of Socrates. And so to, to know what Plato thought would be to have a good understanding of Socrates. If you were to go back in time and see Plato and see Socrates, you would see that they mimicked one another because the, the, the mentor was training the disciple and the disciple acted and looked and spoke like the mentor. When Jesus' ministry began, Andrew was already a disciple of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He was that one who was a, a, a forerunner to Jesus. He's actually Jesus' cousin of sorts. Remember Elizabeth. Elizabeth had been barren all her life. An angel came to her husband, Zechariah, and said, your wife is going to have a child. You're going to have a child. You're going to name him John. And, and Zechariah's like, we're too old for that. And what happened? All of a sudden, God made him mute. He couldn't speak until the baby was born. Uh, this John was a, a special child. He, he grew up, and we don't have really anything in Scripture about what his growing up life was like, but we find him as an adult proclaiming the truth of God, telling people, you must, uh, you must turn from your sin. He, he especially called the, the religious leaders of the day, you brood of vipers. I mean, if you're trying to get followers, that, calling people snakes is not how you do that. But that's what John did, proclaiming that there was one who was coming. And, and, and Andrew was one of John's followers, one of his disciples. And as soon as John the Baptist saw Jesus, as, Jesus is, um, as he was beginning his earthly ministry around age 29 or 30, um, John the Baptist saw Jesus, and what did he say? Remember those famous words? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that statement, Andrew stopped being a follower of John and began following Jesus. Now, John could have been upset by that, but he wasn't because that was his whole purpose. His whole purpose was not to build his following, but to build Jesus' following. By the way, that's what we're supposed to be about as a church, too. Not to build our following, but to build Jesus' following. That word follow is just disciple. Andrew was no longer a disciple of John. He was a disciple of Jesus. And if you know, uh, if you know the, the story, Andrew immediately does what? He doesn't just become a follower of Jesus. He goes and finds his brother. You know him as Peter. One of the, the founding fathers of the church. I don't mean that in a Catholic sense that he was a, a father. I mean that he was one of the first people to establish the church in Jerusalem. One of the, the first pastors of the church. So a disciple is a follower. That's what a disciple is. Here's what a disciple is not. A disciple is not a super Christian. All believers, all Christians, are disciples. If you are not one who follows Christ, you are not a Christian. You are not a believer. Your destiny is not heaven with your creator. All Christians are disciples. A disciple is not some sort of super Christian. It's just a Christian. So as 
as we'll see, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have responsibilities to one another. In fact, throughout Scripture, there are, depending on who's counting, there are about 100 times or so that uh, the phrase one another is either used or implied. And this passage that we are looking at over the, these three Sundays uh, has a strong one another vibe, and I, I trust that you'll see that as we get into it. So uh, our big idea this morning is that disciples prioritize other disciples. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, we put each other ahead of our own needs. That's what we're going to see as we go through the passage. So look at verse 1 again with me. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, because our foundation as believers in Christ, as a church, our foundation is not um, just picking and choosing scripture. Our foundation is scripture. We can't just take this verse by itself. There is a, quite a context in the previous verses that inform the command here in chapter 15, verse 1. So back up to chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So uh, the, this person that's weak in faith that, that in chapter 15, verse 1, we have an obligation to, this person who's weak in faith is one who has a different opinion about, about something. Well, what? Well, the context is that among believers, a person who is weak in the faith is genuinely a believer. So we're not talking about how we as believers in Jesus Christ are interacting with an unsaved person. That, that would be a different, a different story, a different time. This is strong believers dealing with weak believers. This, this, is, this person, this weak person is genuinely, genuinely a believer, but this believer is struggling because of their life before Christ. Now that's key. They are struggling because of their life before Christ. So in, in the following verses in chapter 14, Paul gives two examples. He said in, in 14.1, um, don't, don't quarrel with them. Don't, don't have arguments over opinions. Okay. So the greater context of that is, if there's a, a difference in understanding of the core truths of the gospel... We're not going to overlook that. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're talking about opinions. And he gives two examples of what these weak brothers might be. In one example, the weak brother believes that he can only eat vegetables while the strong brother enjoys both meat and vegetables. Now, if we were talking about the difference between vegetarianism versus not, um, we could probably have a lively discussion in this room. That's not what we're talking about. It's not just about meat and vegetables. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 gives us more details as to what was going on in the early church. I'm not going to, to, to go through that this morning, but if you'd like to get more of a context, that's what it is, and I'll just summarize for us. A believer in Jesus who, before being saved, was a worshiper of pagan idols and then participated in worshiping those idols by eating meat, sacrificed to those idols. That is the weak person we're talking about in the first part of chapter 14. So this, this person who participated in this pagan worship, the, the, the animals sacrificed to the idol, and then the meat cooked up and they eat it, 
they hear the bad news. The bad news is a very important part of the Christian faith, isn't it? Because without the bad news, we don't understand the good news. We like the good news. The bad news is that they were enemies of Christ. They were sinners. They were enemies of God like all mankind have all been. And then they heard the good news that Jesus died as a payment for their sins. So they turned from their sin. They turned to God in faith. And they have been eternally forgiven for their sin. They become part of the church. So their background is pagan worship, eating meat offered to idols. They get in part of the church and they see a fellow believer in Jesus, a brother in Christ, go to the local meat market and get that discounted yummy meat. And it shook them. Because they had come from worshiping idols that used that very meat. Like, I'm not so sure that this Christianity thing I can do if they're doing the same things that we did. They're eating the same meat that we ate in pagan idolatry. I'm not sure I can be a Christian. That's, that's the weakness that these brothers had. The modern term that we'd use is that they were triggered. They could not separate the act of eating meat that they had experienced before, this act of eating meat offered to idols. They could not separate that from, uh, from the worship that they had with those idols. So they struggled. They had not yet grown strong in their faith in Jesus to recognize that eating meat is a good gift from God. I kind of expected some amens for that, but that's okay. Eating meat is a good gift of God. That we can worship and honor God in anything that we eat. So that was the first example in chapter 14. An example of an opinion rooted not in scripture, but in their religious past. The second example in chapter 14 is that of honoring certain days. Whereas the meat issue came from those saved out of paganism, the day issue came from those who were saved out of Judaism. God's law for the Jewish people, the Israelites, those people that we've been studying in the Exodus, that God's law for his people is that they do no ordinary or no normal work on the Sabbath, on Saturday. But once Jesus completed that once-for-all sacrifice for sin on the cross, the Old Testament was fulfilled. That law was fulfilled, and the early church recognized that. So rather than gathering on the Sabbath, they gathered what? On Sunday, and we do that today. Because the resurrection was Sunday. And so the, the, the early church uh, worshipped on Sunday because the Lord raised, was raised from the dead on Sunday, but some of the believers who grew up in Judaism wanted to keep observing the Sabbath. In addition to worshiping on Sunday. Some wanted to keep observing the Sabbath and other Jewish holidays. So if you're, if you're in chapter 14 of Romans, look at verses five through seven with me. The author writes, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, and this is referring back to the, the first person, saved out of paganism, out of that pagan worship. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So this is all the context of what what Paul has laid as a foundation bringing us to chapter 15, verse 1, saying, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We, as being disciples of Jesus Christ, must set aside ourselves for the sake of others, other disciples. So I've just laid out the context from chapter 14. The context is not giving in, in one way or another, to uh, the authority of Scripture or to doctrine based firmly in, in, in the Bible. That, we're not giving in on that. That's not the context. The context is opinions. The context is preferences. The context is not that of compromising truth, but helping a fellow disciple who is struggling because of their past. Bearing with the weak may mean setting aside our freedoms for their sake. In fact, that's the conclusion Paul came to about eating meat offered to idols. He would have enjoyed eating meat offered to idols, but he said because of the sake of a brother that is weak and that this is going to really be a burden and a harm to him, I'm going to not partake. Bearing with the weak means means setting aside our freedom. Bearing with the weak can mean lovingly and slowly and patiently taking the time to teach the unchanging truths of Scripture, not so that we can get them to agree with our opinions, but so they understand where we're coming from, why we have the foundation that we have. It's not to please ourselves, as verse 1 ends with. Doing what helps others is a great working definition of serving. We exist to make disciples who worship, grow, and serve. So being a disciple is setting aside self for others, other disciples. Secondly, being a disciple is helping others to be a disciple. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Two things here, for his good, that which is beneficial to him or to her. Our foundation is always going to be scripture. I'm not sure that I can make that clear enough today. Our foundation is always going to be scripture. And we want to do what is best for our fellow disciple and to build him up. So something being for that person's good must mean that it comes through the lens of Scripture. Getting someone to agree with my opinion ought not ever be my goal as, as a pastor, but as a disciple of Jesus Christ. My goal must be to teach the word of God so that others can grow, so others can serve. You know, for, all the ex- for, for as long as mankind has existed, people have been quite adept at adding restrictions beyond what God has said. Right? Would, we, would you agree with that? Ba- back up to Genesis chapter 3, Eve. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect environment. The serpent comes up to Eve and asks her about God's command. What was God's command? God had commanded them to not eat of a particular tree. 
But when Eve answered, she said, we're not to eat of that tree, nor touch it, lest we die. Had God told them not to touch it? No. That's not recorded in scripture. God said, don't eat of it. Now, it makes sense that if you don't touch something, then you're not going to eat it. That may have been a logical progression, but it is not what God said. We've been good from the very beginning at adding restrictions beyond what God requires. The Old Testament law included restrictions from eating certain meats, being translated as bacon. Uh, They weren't to eat pork and other unclean meats. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jewish people had come up with additional restrictions on how they were to prepare or not prepare certain foods. The law included a restriction from work on the Sabbath. That's all it said. Do no ordinary work on the Sabbath. It is to worship. God has set it aside so that you can rest, so you can worship him. But overzealous religious people added so many other restrictions to the Sabbath that the Sabbath became a burden to the people rather than being the gift of rest and the blessing of worship that it was supposed to be. Our obligation is to help other followers of Jesus for their good, not to add other extra-biblical obligations so that they can be more like us, so they can be like Jesus. For their good, verse 2, to build them up. Our role is to help others increase in their love and dedication to Jesus, that they might model Jesus, that we might model Jesus. Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, he is the model we are to follow. Which takes us to verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Being a disciple is setting aside ourselves for others, is helping others to be a disciple, and thirdly, being a disciple is being like Jesus. Jesus did not leave the glories of heaven to come to earth for his benefit. The Advent, Christmas, was a real sacrifice for Jesus. By the way, how many of you are listening to Christmas music? Yeah, there are hands, yeah. Hate me later, I don't care, I'm listening to Christmas music. The Advent was just the start of his sacrifice for us. Uh, Verse three here ends with a quote from Psalm chapter 69, or Psalm number 69, verse nine, which says, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And if you don't know what the word reproach means, then that's not a helpful verse, is it? He's talking about sin. The sin of those who sinned against God are laid on God the Son. That great exchange. I... Get his righteousness, he gets my unrighteousness. If there was ever an unfair exchange, that's it. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, the religious people who should have been the first to welcome him rejected him. They had the entire Old Testament with all its prophecies. They didn't just have it collecting dust on the shelf. The religious leaders knew the Old Testament inside out and backwards. 
In fact, when, the, when the, the, what we know of the, the wise men, as the Magi came and are looking for the Messiah, they asked the religious leaders, well, where is he supposed to have been born? And they knew the answer. They knew all about the Messiah. They knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. They had the entire Old Testament, all the prophecies regarding the chosen one, the Messiah, and Jesus alone fit the bill. And remember, these prophecies were not generic fortune cookie style prophecies that could just apply to anyone. These were very specific, like being born of a virgin, being a descendant of David in the town of Bethlehem, being betrayed by someone close to him. Remember Judas? Being betrayed by someone close to him and being sold for 30 pieces of silver. That is really specific. In fact, there were over 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled to the letter in his lifetime. That's not including the prophecies about Jesus that are yet to be fulfilled, that will one day be fulfilled. 300 specific prophecies about Jesus, all fulfilled. And for whose benefit? It was for ours, right? He died for our sin. He took on the guilt and penalty of our sins. And when we come to him in faith, he gives us his righteousness. Not because we act rightly, we don't. Not because we recite a chant or a phrase. We, it's not by paying a fee. No, it's by faith. By believing. Christ sacrificed himself for our benefits. We have the responsibility to sacrifice, to serve others for their benefit. And no, we'll never do it the way Christ did. But that's our standard, that's our model as given to us in today's passage. Disciples prioritize, you and I as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, we prioritize other disciples we bear with the failings of the weak. And again, we're not confusing the weak with those who espouse unbiblical doctrine. We're not confusing the weak with those who are actually strong but wrong in their doctrine because those are to be rebuked. Those are to be removed from the church, right? We're talking about those who are genuinely weak. We want to help them grow. We want to serve one another in that way. So our challenge today is to set aside ourselves for the sake of others, to serve others. Let's pray. Lord, you have sent your son so that he might live a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live. You sent him so he would fulfill the law to the letter because we couldn't do it. You sent him to be righteous so that in that great exchange on the cross he could have our sins placed on his account that he could suffer and bear the penalty of our sins 
and that we, by faith, might receive his righteousness. He did this to save, and he also did this as an example so that we would serve. Father, help us to look beyond ourselves. Oh, we are a selfish people. It's part of our culture, but more so, Lord, it's part of our nature. So, Father, help us to live for the new nature that you give to believers when you save them. The word tells us that you put in us a new nature, that you give us the spirit. Help us to follow him rather than our own hearts. Help us to look out for our brother and sister in Christ, that we might help them to live for you. Father, help us to be the servants that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.